0: On how to bring forth the Christian worldview to all of life.
1: In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. His food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. Lord, open our hearts, please. John comes out of the desert. We're told in Luke 3 that John didn't just appear in the wilderness one day, but that seemed to be where his native element was. The word of the Lord came to John, son of Zebedee, in the wilderness. It's where he was. Why was he there? This is the question I'm going to be asking throughout the text the entire morning. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. What was he doing there? There's no getting away from it. He describes himself as, for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. He is that preparation that God wanted, the last word before unveiling his own divine presence on earth. So why the desert? I don't mean what were the specific reasons why John thought he was there. I'm talking about the purposes God revealed in scripture because we're not really told john's state of mind john is inextricably connected with the desert he is the wilderness voice of god what is it about the desert that is important for us to understand why why does god so often meet people there abraham isaac and jacob wander in the land of strangers it's a desert land lot takes the fruitful jordan Uh, the river basin area, and Abraham gets the desert. The world gets fertility sex cults for their religion. Abraham gets circumcision and a barren wife. The world today gets okay, I'm okay, you're okay, situation ethics. We get a covenant and 10 commandments that tell us what we can and can't do. Isaac gets a lot of wealth, but he seems to sit around most of his life while things good and bad happen to him. He's not really an active agent. And his life is sort of a picture of going nowhere, a wasteland with those closest to him warring back and forth across the wilderness of his poor leadership that he's made of his family. Jacob spends the major chunk of his recorded life out in the desert where he has fled from the desert of his home life in his battles with Esau. And now he is taking care of his thieving uncle father-in-law Laban's business out in the middle of the desert. It's almost like Abraham comes down off the mountain, and his uh, servant Eliezer says, Hey, Abraham, so what did God tell you? And, I mean, Eliezer is stunned. He goes outside, and Eliezer's uh, uh, friend said, What did he say? And Eliezer says, I, I, I don't know. i got to go back in and ask Abraham again. I, I must have missed something. And he goes back in. He says, Abraham, let me just get this straight. Ishmael and the Arabs get the land and the oil. And we cut off the end of our what? That's kind of the desert. It's what it looks like. Joseph winds up first a prisoner in a dry well, then a slave, then in jail. Not quite a desert, but close enough for God to make them the pivot points of his life. Moses is driven out into the desert after trying to lead a revolution. There in the desert, God meets Moses. Later on in the same desert, God meets his people. God gives his law in the desert. He purifies his people in the desert, seeing to it that those without faith never make it out of the desert. In fact, one of the points of scripture is it's that lack of faith that creates a desert out of any sort of prosperous land that the faithless may find themselves in. Then Elijah, the prophet, is uniquely the desert prophet. He prophesies that it will not rain until he calls for rain. And then he disappears out into the desert where he lives on locusts and wild honey. Then later, his life is threatened, and he sees his, I forgot to mention the roadkill that the birds brought to him. Then later, his life is threatened, and he sees his life work, tottering, and Israel falling away into judgment in spite of everything he could do. In fact, he flees into the desert to Mount Horeb, the same place God gave the law to Moses, and he says, you know, I, I thought I was better than my fathers. I'm not. I I can't do anything with Israel either. Now they're trying to kill me. And we even had that Mount Carmel thing where fire comes down. They're still trying to kill me. God, nothing's working. And God meets Elijah and sends him back to Israel because his work isn't finished. Among other things, Elijah has to raise up a prophet to carry on his labor. Then Elijah goes back into the desert where he's taken up in a chariot of fire to heaven and never dies. Now around Elijah, who was taken up into heaven from the desert, there grew the prophetic word that he was going to ret- going to return, or some sort of the messenger of the covenant return. In fact, Malachi, almost the very last words of the of the Old Testament are, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet for the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So everybody's all waiting for Elijah the prophet and the, that dreadful day. What, what must be dreadful? I mean, how, how bad can you imagine it? Then we read that scripture this morning. Do you remember the verse right before verse five about Elijah coming to announce the day of the Lord? That's right, back in Malachi, right before the verse that uh, is is quoted in connection with John the Baptist. Malachi says, remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. God links these to the major desert prophets and experiences of Israel together and later in the ministry of Christ. When two figures from the old covenant come to speak with Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration, it's Moses and Elijah. This link up in John's life and persona is no accident. He comes like Elijah to call Israel back to the straight paths of God's law. Out of the desert comes the one who does more than merely announcing the beginning of the work of his son, Jesus Christ. John's task is to prepare the way of the Lord, to make his path straight. He was to create the environment in which the saving work of God could be announced. He was to be a transformer of the desert, beginning the work of the one God was sending to transform the entire earth, which had become a desert. And just so you wouldn't miss the link with Elijah, John is one of the five people, excluding angelic beings, whose clothes are described in the Bible. First, of course, is Adam, who attempted to cover his sin with fig leaves, prefiguring all of man's pathetic, earthly attempts to make themselves fit for God's presence. The second was the high priest, whose clothing was more than just the necessary coverings, like the stuff that God gave to Adam, the skins. they were given underwear to cover themselves. That did the job, by the way, just as an aside, this is the first mention in history of the wearing of underwear, okay? Uh, that's just an aside. There's so many firsts in in, in the um, books of Moses, but this is one that people get taken by surprise. It's where underwear is mentioned in the Bible. But the reason they were clothed, forget the underwear, the reason they were clothed was to display the splendor of heaven itself Patterned after the glorious visible manifestation of the Spirit of God in the clouds of glory. They are to be visible manifestations of that glory Spirit of God, the Shekinah. Christ brings the clothing of mankind's two defining priests, Adam and the high priest, into fulfillment. Not only are we told that Jesus wore a seamless garment, but we're told that his clothes that he clothes us in a seamless garment of righteousness that covers us in his accepting love and in the end entirely does away with our sin, giving us new, how do you say it, glad rags, party clothes. Remember the people who came into the party without their clothing? They were thrown out. Jesus Christ clothes us in his righteousness, uniting us into a seamless body, clothed with him where our full individuality and our full incorporation to his body is a mystery made complete but it's not explained, it's just made complete. Paul speaks not only of being clothed with Christ's righteousness when he dies, but also after death, before the resurrection, Christ somehow becomes the replacement for a time of our physical body, and Paul speaks of that. Nobody really understands it. Paul didn't say a whole lot about it, but it's in there. And between Adam and Christ, we have Elijah and John, two men whose clothing and diet indicates that they were still men of the desert. Now, John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. His food was locust and wild uh, honey. Inescapably, anybody reading that says, oh my gosh, it's Elijah. The biggest part of that environment John was given to recreate into a proper receiving room for Christ was the desert. So, okay, why a desert? Could it be that the desert is the place that the earth becomes where men rebel against God? As men measure what they think, that rebelling against God will profit them against the profit of obedience to God, they think, you know, that Jordan River plain sure looks green. Those cities of Sodom and Gomorrah sure look rich and prosperous and full of advantage. And Lot moves into profitable Sodom. Go to the Jordan plain today. It's a symbol of everlasting sterility and death. It's even called the Dead Sea. The surrounding tribes first fought over the wells that Abraham dug and finally just filled them up, turning the land back into a desert. Jacob runs to Laban to escape his murdering brother and finds that things get even worse as his life becomes a desert out in the wilderness, taking care of someone else's sheep. And he realizes the desert he had made of the promises of God to him, even though Esau was cut out of them, Jacob had no clue of what to do with them or even how to get back to them. His home and now his new life had become a desert. Moses, to his credit, recognized that Egypt was the real desert and he fled it for the mere literal desert, preferring to be identified with God's people rather than to live in the luxury of sin. There wasn't much hope out in the desert, but it beat what it would take to be in Egypt. God's people finally were willing to join him there. They had to be driven out with a mighty hand. And from the desert, they were introduced into the garden of God, the land flowing with milk and honey. The land they had been kicked out of when Adam and Eve were sent forth from the garden and an angel with a sword. The sword The bearing of the sword is not without significance. The angel with the sword kept them from getting back in. And once in the land... God's people began thinking that all those other religions sure made sense and were very, very interesting. And before you knew it, they had turned Israel into a spiritual desert, soon to be conquered by pagans, and the land would be turned back into a literal desert. You see how the land and their spiritual condition match each other. They go back and forth. This this flows throughout the entire revelation of God. I'm just touching on some of the high points. The next time you're reading, just watch how often it pops up. And before you knew it, we tend ourselves to turn the good things God gives us into deserts. When God has called us in the Great Commission to turn everything we touch into the garden of God. Why does God meet his people and his prophets in the desert? Why the desert? Because the desert is what God transforms into a garden. Isaiah tells us that the desert shall rejoice and blossom like the rose in connection with Messiah. Messiah. The first Adam starts off in a wonderful garden, which was contrasted with the wilderness of the rest of the earth. It was would be the pattern for the whole earth, the transformation and blossoming of that wilderness. But through sin and rebellion, he turns it into a desert. The second Adam starts off in a desert and turns it into a garden. Matthew and Mark and Luke tell us that Jesus in his last moments before his arrest was in Gethsemane struggling with God, wrestling with God over his coming exodus. John, however, adds the note that Gethsemane, where Jesus strove with God before going to the cross, for us, was a garden. It's the beginning of that work. It's the stepping back into the garden. John knew perfectly well what the symbolism was of the fact that Jesus was praying in the garden. The saving work of God is to establish a garden city whose builder and maker is God. The garden city of Babylon, for instance, only apes the glory of God's heavenly city. The way the banderlog in Kipling's jungle books, you know, those all those monkeys, tried to be human. All they needed was a secret of fire. And so humanists look at the Christians and think, well, all we need is, they have some pretty good ideas there, but we don't really need all the rest of that stuff. If you want one of the best pictures of humanism, Kipling gives it to you right there in the jungle book. And John's life is tied up in that desert where he begins the work of Christ. And so how does your work in the garden begin? In fall? In fact, right, uh, the reason I'm thinking about the garden is right after this, I'm going to be going into my own garden out here and uh, digging it up. In the fall, after harvesting, you let it sit for the season, stripped of the dead plants that grew there, perhaps covered lying and flat and, and fallow. Even so, Israel sat fallow for 350 years without the word of the Lord, in winter, lying, waiting. And then the first thing we do is plow the land to prepare it. And so John walked out into the desert and began plowing and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. All movements of God begin with this word. The, the message of the gospel begins with this word, not a comfortable word. It implies what you know in your heart and desperately hide from everyone. Something is terribly wrong, and here comes God and says, you, you are terribly wrong. It doesn't have to be this way, though. Repent. That's why it's good news. He's done something about it. But he can't do something about what hasn't been repented. The wilderness is not God's ideal plan for our lives. This is, this is really something I want you to get. It's funny how some Christians make an ideal out of the desert simply because God meets people there in the desert. There's a whole movement in America today which is back to the small farm and it's and, and sort of back to the desert, as if there's some advantage to being in a sterile wilderness, just you against the elements. And how many times do you hear Christians longing for the return of some sort of a anti-Christian despotism like communism or Hitler, where we can really show that we have faith like all those men of faith? It's sort of like seeking the advantage of castration, God forbids such foolish daydreams. It becomes, in romantic Christian thought, the ideal place where we can meet God alone and unbothered by the material world, like children, jobs, houses, politics, community demands, uh, the Federal Reserve, you name it. Well, it is not wrong to get alone with God, but the ideal that I just gave you, which so many Christians espouse and long for, really is, 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 is more the province of Buddhism and Hinduism that makes this aloneness a barren ideal. Buddhist meditation is world-denying, that eightfold path or fourfold, depending on which branch of Buddhism you're in, that path, to nirvana, is is a path to nothingness. It it, it starts by saying what's important is is to, to realize that the reason there's pain in the world is because everything is differentiated. You can see the differences in everything, and the way to achieve healing from that pain is by to achieve a state of mind which is nothingness or everythingness and everythingness and nothingness become the same thing for them this isn't christianity this isn't the idealization of the desert and then through meditation the making of the desert into a zero talk about ultimate sterility christian meditation is world affirming it's world transforming the psalms touch on all of creation transforming it into what god intended Cursing the desert we have transformed it into, in almost every psalm, you'll find that curse of the desert. No, don't long for a return to the desert. Long for the transformation of the world you're a part of into the garden of God and and start plowing. The desert, the places, (laughs) the desert, the wild places, are not what God wants us to preserve as a wilderness. It is the place that God wants to transform into a proper meeting place like Eden like the city of God at the end of the book of Revelation that he intended the entire earth to be. God's goal for all of history is, is not an untouched wilderness. It's not a nice little garden where Adam and Eve got started. It's, it's, it's this giant city 1,500 miles across, 1,500 miles up, 1,500 miles deep. It's the city of God that, whose builder and maker is God coming down out of heaven. That, that city is a city and it's intended to be the most beautiful garden ever devised or ever thought of. Don't make your Christian social ideal a desert, a getaway f- free from the city, and therefore you think closer to God. The purpose of the desert is to be transformed into a garden, not to sit and meditate on your navel. John the Baptist's message was to make straight God's path. Not so that the wilderness of sin and destruction or even the literal wilderness of the countryside might be forever preserved and touched like those who worship ecology demand. It is to transform that wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And that's what John was beginning to do. He wasn't just out in the desert meditating on stuff. So if you feel like you're in in something of a desert right now, It's both bad news and good news. It's bad news because it probably means that God's opinion, sterile nothingness, is about all you can handle. It's good news because he's getting your attention, and the next step is to put your shoulder to the plow and begin that work of transformation he has called you to. Transformation of what? Well, what's in your hands? Do you have kids? Do you have a wife? Do you have a husband? Do you have a job? Do you have a house? Do you have friends? Do you live in a neighborhood? There it is. Those are the people that God has put into your hands. Those are the circumstances in your hands. Does it look like a desert? Well, do you hear God calling you? Where this world-changing reality is realized in our lives, we become the sort of people who can plow, plant, and reap in God's kingdom. God's kingdom isn't an escape into the desert. It's a transformation of that desert that we find ourselves in, that our faithlessness and the faithlessness of generations before us who have transformed Christianity into a a waiting room for some divine act to snatch us out. That's the desert that God wants to transform into a life world changing vision for all things and for what's in your hands. Then Jerusalem and Judea and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing Mm -hmm. their sins. These words which begin Matthew's gospel also close it. Go make disciples, baptize them, all nations. Baptism sets apart God's disciples who are not consumed by the desert, do not make an ideal of desert life, but who transform the desert by the blood of the Lamb, the power of their testimony,
0: and that they do not love their lives unto death. Thank you for listening to this episode of No Neutrality on the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network. Don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to download your favorite audiobooks and podcasts. And if you are a Christian Reconstructionist blogger and you'd like to contribute your blogs into this audio blog format, click on the volunteer link on our website. Send us an email And let us know you'd like to join the team. May Christ be glorified and his kingdom extended from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts,